Welcome to American Building, a weekly recorded show whose mission is to share an alternative perspective of what we build in America and why. Together, we discover how the work of the real estate industry connects to every American. In season two, we focused on how buildings changed as a result of the pandemic. In this season, we're revisiting conversations from previous seasons to see where Americans put their heads down at night. Together, we will discover the many definitions of home across the New York City metropolitan area, which includes over 23 million Americans. Each week, we'll visit a new building and explore complex and confusing issues related to housing access to see what they can teach us about ourselves and our country. We'll meet those who work to develop in thoughtful and impactful ways, who build neighborhoods to be more sustainable, affordable, accessible, or inclusive, who labor to create thriving communities and transform the lives of generations to come. Through their stories, we will humanize often polarizing topics. Profound, surprising, and hilarious, this show is for developers and builders with boots on the ground, for innovators trying to find ways to improve our industry, for the policymakers and public employees, and for any person who has walked by a building and wondered why. And now your host, award-winning architect turned developer and startup founder, Atif Khadr, AIA. This is American Building, and I'm your host, Atif Khadr. I'm the founder of Commonplace. Join me as I take a drive by the skylines and strip malls, crosswalks and rail crossings, balconies, buildings, and boroughs to discover a new generation of housing. Let's build common ground. In this episode, you will learn about the history of single-family developments in the New York City area, the long shadow Levittown casts on housing, and who lives in suburbia then and now. You'll join me in learning about the suburbanism installation influenced by this history. Massive single-family home developments can be traced back to World War II. Construction material shortages and the labor drain from 16 million Americans, or 12% of the entire U.S. population, fighting abroad meant that few homes were actually getting built. Access to capital was difficult, with most mortgages requiring 20 to 50% down payment and requiring repayment in as little as five to seven years. Many Americans were poor and couldn't afford the homes that were available at the financing terms that were prevalent. In fact, six million American families were doubling up with relatives and half a million were living in barns, garages, or mobile homes. After World War II, the federal government went in big on economic intervention through the Federal Housing Authority and Veterans Administration. They guaranteed and purchased loans offered by private lenders. Together, these agencies accounted for a whopping 51% of the single-family home purchases by 1950. 
They required just a 5% down payment and had 30-year amortization periods. Not only that, the loan programs had minimum lot sizes and setback requirements that effectively excluded urban multifamily homes from being eligible for this once-in-a-lifetime geyser of socialism. The Federal Aid Highway Act of 1956 literally paved the road to suburbia for single-family home developers and the buyers of the homes they built. In the 1950s, suburbs on Long Island and New Jersey were growing at 10 times the rate of downtown areas in New York City. Levittown is the quintessential American suburb. It totaled 17,400 homes built on 4,000 acres of potato fields in central Nassau County on Long Island. These homes ranged in style from the classic Cape Cod and later colonials, ranchers, and country clubbers. The Levitts brought standardized manufacturing to the construction industry, allowing them to achieve low cost and high speed. So what does this have to do with race? Levittown seemed perfect, but the loan programs I mentioned had race-based underwriting guidelines and race-based deed covenants that shut out blacks and other minorities, including veterans who had fought for our country abroad. These practices were even held up as constitutional by the Supreme Court before they were eventually overturned. In a great article for Curbed, writer Patrick Sison says, many of the pressing urban planning issues we face today, sprawl, excessive traffic, sustainability issues, housing affordability, racial discrimination, and the persistence of poverty can be traced back to this boom. There's nothing wrong with the government promoting home ownership as long as the opportunities it presents are open and accessible to all. The link to the article is in the show notes. The classic 1961 book, Revolutionary Road by Richard Yates, tells the story and presages the decades of evolution of New York City suburbia into, as some may say, wastelands of conformity and empty malls, pushing boomerang reurbanization and the skyrocketing prices of urban housing of the last decade. As a side note, the book was terribly remade into a romantic drama in 2008 with Leonardo DiCaprio and Kate Winslet. Today, New York City's population is 8.5 million people. They are 28% Hispanic, 23% Black, and 14% Asian. In contrast, the suburban and rural areas of the metropolitan region of New York City are home to 15.1 million people. They are 18% Hispanic, 10% Black, and 6% Asian. In this episode of American Building, I am sharing an edited version of the conversation I had in April 2022 with Kenneth Namkung. Ken is the founder and designer at Monument Office, a research and design firm based in Brooklyn. He specializes in the interplay between architecture, public space, and memory. He is also a senior associate at Perkins Eastman. Previously, he worked with NBBJ Design, Studio Link Arc, 
Ennead Architects, and Santiago Calatrava. He started his career at Rafael Vignoli Architects, where I did my first internship. He is a graduate of the Massachusetts Institute of Technology and the University of Virginia. Enjoy the conversation. Thank you so much for being here with us, Ken. Thank you. It's an absolute pleasure to be here. It's really an honor to participate. So what I did for this project was I started with that kind of uh, global you know, movement as sort of um, a jumping off point from the design. I went online. I just Googled suburban house plans. I found, mm-hmm. I pulled up the first one that I could find. I made a digital model of that, you know, put the floor plans to CAD and what have you. One of the things that that really kind of led me into this notion of dealing with the suburban experience, honestly, was, you know, for me, it's less, not, it's, it's partially about, you know, growing up in the suburbs and moving to New York City. That's one thing. But also as a first generation immigrant, you know, I'm not coming from a culture that really comes from a suburban sort of history, right? So in mm-hmm. other words, you know, when I'm growing up in the suburbs, you know, I'm, you know, we as a, as a, as a Korean immigrant family, we are occupying suburban space differently. We are occupying suburban, you know, the suburban house differently. It's a slightly different attitude towards the domestic environment, towards the front yard, towards the backyard. So there's actually, you know, there's, there's this kind of additional cultural layer that for me is sort of applied to this as well. And what's also interesting is that we, we do start to sort of move a, a little bit away from sort of architecture. But for, for reasons that I'm not going to get into here, my own connection to Korea, you know, my nominal homeland is actually pretty weak. I've only been back, um, you know, two or three times. And for various reasons, um, I, I'm not I'm not really going to get into here. You know, going back is will not be an option for some time, right? Mm-hmm. So what ends up happening is that you're in this kind of suburban space, right? But you're occupying it from through the lens of a completely different culture, yeah. and you're also occupying through the lens of a culture that you don't fully know yourself. So there's a sort of I wouldn't call it discomfort, but it's this kind of feeling of like not entirely being there or sort of feeling you know. Being feeling like you're really 100% a part of this. So, you know, for me, this exploration is, you know, there's a lot of psychology and a lot of memory here as well. There's so many interesting parts uh, to this. In particular, what you're describing feels like it could be the experience of the, the children in Minari, the Oscar nominated, I believe, Oscar winning movie that was uh, last year focused on the experience of. Korean immigrants to uh, Arkansas, which is, I think, the extreme even beyond suburban America, and this idea of trying to put oneself into another culture and time and space and physical environment, and the awkwardness and the beauty that, that does come from that. So I think I definitely appreciate that. And I would imagine for Indian, Pakistani, and other Asian uh, immigrants, this idea that the the often the unit of measure that we use a foundational in our culture is the community. It's not the nuclear family. It's not the individual. So the notion that you have a house that is built for a nuclear family on a separate lot that is not attached to another uh, and that each person typically will have their own bedroom uh, is of a different scale and a different notion that I think uh, that people from these backgrounds are familiar with. And I think it's not as if there is a solution to be made or an answer to be found. It's more just the the strangeness of being that that ends up uh, creating. So I, I feel like there 
there's definitely something uh, really evocative in what you're saying. And, and what particularly struck me was when you talked about this idea of memory and the idea of creating not the space itself, but the uh, defining the area around it in order to emphasize what was not there uh, anymore. And in particular, I think that that is a tool that is uh, one that could be, say, similar to photography of photographing uh, historic monuments. Uh, for example, um, I saw a recent uh, installation of uh, photographs of historic monuments that were destroyed uh, during the invasion of Syria uh, over the past couple of years. So Greco-Roman uh, and Ottoman and beyond uh, historic monuments. And I think in particular, the what I saw over the past two years is the use of uh, Web3 uh, type tools to recreate uh, in virtual worlds, uh, what someone isn't able to access or experience anymore. Uh, so for example, students at MIT recreated the entire campus, uh, if you know, in, in Roblox. Uh, so essentially, or Minesweeper, one of the two. And I think this idea of, of recreation or uh, of memory being written in many different ways feels like something that is particularly evocative in a time where people may not be uh, in their typical situation, uh, either physically or mentally or in any other way. Right. And I think to be, to take a dark turn towards that, I think this idea of favoring or perhaps looking back at a childhood memory of home versus a present reality is a really evocative metaphor for millennials. So we are the poorest generation in American history. We are the first ones where our parents' generation actually have a greater level of living than our generation does. Uh, and particularly, we have the lowest rate of homeownership that has been the case at our maturation process of our generation in modern American history. And there's this reality that there are millennials and plenty of them that can't afford the home that they grew up in uh, if they were to try to attempt to purchase it now, namely because over the past several years, uh, the incredible influx of iBuyers uh, in markets like, say, for example, Phoenix, where this past year, 25% of the home sales went to essentially six different companies that bought them through uh, algorithms. And I think this notion of, of memory, particularly for millennials, I think is going to become stronger and stronger as more and more so that, that transition happens to homeownership. And perhaps what we're able to buy is a lot more modest than what it was that we grew up in. Right, right. The funny thing about this is that, you know, when you think about, you know, this notion of the suburban home and this history, this memory, in some ways, like, you're right, this could also be understood as, you know, effectively the ghosting of it, the ghostly nature of this almost talks about something un unattainable, not, not, not necessarily just history, but, mm -hmm. you know, something that is never going to be a reality. And one thing that, you know, that that dawned on me as as we were having this conversation was that, you know, a lot of the, you know, I grew up, I grew up in like kind of one of the older suburbs. The house I grew up in was built in 1978, something like mm -hmm. that, right? And when you think about it, a lot of the um, political decisions, a lot of the kind of governmental decisions that kind of lead us to our current state of, in, you know, income inequality, um, this, you know, this huge amount of money coming into uh, residential, um, coming into uh, residential construction, mm -hmm. residential architecture, a lot of those decisions that, that, that led to our current condition are actually happening in the late seventies, early eighties, you know, um, that, that sort of thing. Right. So, I, you know, and this is really doesn't relate to anything, but you know, this adds just a kind of another dimension to that discussion. Right. I'm basing this on a suburban floor plan that yes. easily could have been built in 1980. So, 
I think so. Uh, that this idea that the idea of home is one that is uh, tied with both reality and imagination, fact and fiction, and uh, the haves and the have-nots. Uh, and that essentially is the, the story of suburban America. And help us understand, so we now we understand the uh, location, we understand the material, we understand your design process and the scale. Walk our listeners through what they would see and feel as they were walking along, for example, 32nd Street uh, into Herald Square, and what, what they would see in and around them at the suburbanism installation. Right. Well, the larger idea, obviously, is to sort of, you know, is to be occupying this urban space. Mm-hmm. That was, you know, and the idea was to create a new kind of urban space that's created by the negative, the negative form generated, um, you know, by this, by this house form, right? So the idea is really to, as lightly as possible, to create something that is spatial without being excessively physical or architectural. So when you're, when you're inside this space, you have this very, very light roof over you that gets back to this notion of history, that gets back to this mm-hmm. notion of memory. And to further this connection to the American suburbs, what I did was I, I'm proposing occupying the space beneath it and adjacent with this sort of type of um, wire mesh furniture that effectively is sort of uh, actually derived from various suburban um, archetypes. You know, you've got, let me pull it up here. You know, I just randomly took a couple of um, suburban, suburban ideas and sort of combined them and recombined them in different ways. So there's, you know, there's a wire mesh version of like the, um, the easy boy lounge chair. Mm-hmm. There's a, um, I've done some, something similar to like the large sort of sectional sofa um, I've got, you know, your kind of backyard you know, recliner, you know, that's been kind of rendered in this sort of ghostly wire mesh material as well. So the idea is, you know, to really, I mean, in terms of the occupation of this urban space, you're, you know, you've got the ghost of the suburban house above you. And then you've got this sort of suburban furniture, which allows you to sort of occupy the space of the city in a different way, in a way which sort of helps people remember, you know, the suburban life before New York City. Mm-hmm. And the idea also is very much to sort of, you know, create a lively and active um, public space. And, you know, the one of the great things about the city is that the second you put out a place for people to sit, people, people sit. People sit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, we're yeah. like pigeons, basically. Humans are like pigeons. <laughs> that, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. And one of the things that I do like about that that's been happening in the Herald Square area recently is that the city has made efforts to bring more uh, street furniture. Um, there's there's the green tables and chairs, you know, those little light metal things. They've put out ping pong tables, and now there's um, you know they have uh, live music uh, playing there on on a fairly mm-hmm. regular basis. Some of it is, comes from the city, some of it some of it is just random people, you know, uh, who are uh, playing for money. But it also but it makes for a what I would consider a very, very a lively space. So the term suburb literally means below urban, referring to the lower density of these places, typically located in rings around your city. In your opinion, what is the suburb and how has it changed over time? And feel free to use any measure of time to go all the way back to the Eastern Han Dynasty, which I think was the first suburbs recorded in human history to anything more, more close. So how have suburbs evolved? It's quite interesting. Um, The one thing that I have noticed is that, you know, when I was growing up, I think you could sort of see that 
Well, the, the suburb I grew up in, um, Yorktown, Virginia, was you know a fairly sleepy um, a little place. Very much sort of, there was a bit of a, a connection to you know the older Southeast Virginia, the, the older Tidewater um, area that that has been there for you know two hundred years. And you know when I was growing up, there was still a very very strong um, connection to um, the local culture, mm-hmm. right? Um, and I don't know that that was the case for every suburb, but, you know, a lot of the first ring suburbs outside, you know, cities like Pittsburgh, outside cities like Boston, you know, there is something of a connection to the local history of the place. Mm-hmm. And my own family, our center of gravity has moved from um, Southeast Virginia to around the Washington, Washington DC area. And to me, it's a much more, it, it's much newer, at least, at least, you know, um, where, where my parents lived. And in some ways it's a much more sort of anonymous suburb, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the buildings are fancier, but they're, you know, they're just, they're, they're, they're much more generic. It's, it's a much more, you know, they're, 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 in some ways, like there's much more, more emphasis on curb appeal. You know, so, so in other words, it's, it's in some ways, the, the new American suburb, or what I see now is it's much more about looking like something as opposed to actually being something, if mm-hmm. that makes sense. Another thing that I found, though, is that at least, you know, in, in the suburb, you know, where, where my parents live now, the shopping centers have become, they're starting to be based around, based in some ways, like they're starting to mimic more kind of what we would consider in urban conditions. So you've got, you know, your little sort of public street, you know, um, where people are interacting a little bit. And then, but but that's surrounded by, you know, like seven acres of parking, right? Mm-hmm. So in other words, it's, um, you're starting to see, you know, kind of the reverse um, movement from what I suggest to where, Effectively, um, the sub the suburban shopping experience is starting to kind of become a simulacrum of um, what we would consider a modern urban condition. So, it, so I guess the way I would see it is that this, the suburb to me seems much more. You know, I, I don't want to use the word fake, but I think it's you know people are really trying to sort of evoke something that 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 really wasn't there in the past. Another thing that I do find interesting is that you know. My father, you know, before he passed, was in a retire was in sort of a suburban kind of, not quite a retirement community, but it was um, he was in a community that was uh, geared towards kind of older um, older home buyers, right? Mm-hmm. And what the funny thing was in that particular where he lived, you know, the space he occupied was much more spatially kind of ambiguous, like you know, much more open than um, than than any other suburban house I've ever, I've ever lived in, you know, to the point that, you know, because, you know, it's designed for, you know, your older, you know, your older residents who may be not walking as well, you know, they may be in wheelchairs. So there's a certain amount of openness that's sort of required, mm-hmm. you know, which makes things, well, effectively, it's just remarkably informal, right? Yeah. So, so, so I think that's been interesting. I think in particular, the, this idea of an architectural style and a typology that attempts to evoke something that isn't there or it tends to be representative of an imagined existence. Uh, and I think that there is no thing more emblematic of what you just described than the McMansion. And I think that's a term that folks uh, from our industry and obviously from outside of it have heard. But the history of that term, I think, is one that is so fascinating as a corollary uh, to the the transformation of the American suburb over the past 30 to 40 years. 
And I think particularly the the key elements of a McMansion, one of them is this uh, jumbled design language that includes things like steeply sloped roofs, multiple dormers, mansard roofs, really detailed mixed material palettes, keystones and coins, and weird um, different types of cladding uh, that ends up resulting in this idea that you can't figure out if you're looking at something that like a reduction of something Palladio designed or something that looks like a Levittown. That's essentially this, this mishmash in between. Uh, and the origins of McMansions actually started in the 1980s in California. And the idea was that it was meant to be a type of a house that was somewhere in between a typical tract uh, housing, suburban housing, and somewhere between a suburban gated community or a golf course. Uh, so generally smaller lots. Uh, but wanted to explore a lot similar to the lower level homes, um, but we wanted to give the impression of grandeur of the larger level homes. And that's why this notion of this fast food reference and the supersizing of these homes is something that has become a design language uh, of their own. And now they're essentially pejorative uh, to be negatively described, to negatively describe the homes. Uh, I think some other terms that are, are often used are uh, Hummer houses, I've heard that uh, very occasionally, a starter castle and executive homes. Uh, so I think that they all tend to be um, key parts of the design language of the American suburb. So help our listeners understand the things that resulted in the American suburb being created, because this this did not happen in a vacuum. There are certain cultural, political, and even transportation conditions that made suburbs expand rapidly in the United States. Give us an overview of what some of those issues are and uh, were for the American suburb. From what I gather, you know, there's this um, there's this need to, you know, it, a lot of this is coming from post-World War II, the, the GI Bill. There's a need to house all these soldiers who are coming back, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I think that there's this push to, especially after World War II, there's a bit of a push to establish something of an American identity separate from sort of, you know, the, the immigrant cultures that exist in the cities. You know? mm-hmm. So there's this, you know, effectively this desire to kind of create almost an, an American sort of town style tradition, which, um, you know, it, it evokes sort of the English country, you know, these English country homes, that sort of thing. And it, it's, it's all part of this larger sort of kind of endeavor to, to kind of create, you know, the American lifestyle. Mm-hmm. There's a certain aspect of, you know, as I've mentioned, sort of maybe not wanting to be associated with with, with these Im- immigrant cultures, which are primarily in cities. There's a certain aspect of, of of class and race, where honestly, it's my understanding that, you know, suburban houses were effectively designed to be economically out of reach for very specific uh, groups of people, and you know that that's I, I don't I don't know how um, how well known that is, but but that's very much uh, my understanding. And on top of that, there is this larger, you know, this is all happening in conjunction with the creation of the American interstate system, which is obviously looking to connect people in places. There's a certain thought of, I believe, trying to get people out of the major population centers because this is also the start of the Cold War. So, mm-hmm. you know, again, I don't know how, how much it's one factor versus the other. Correct. But, you know, it's, you know, all these things come together to create an urban and ar- architectural condition, which is very, very specific to America. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, and I think that there are many different aspects, and I'll add a few more that might help color our listeners' understanding. In addition, it's the growth of the commuter railroads, uh, particularly 
those around Metro New York City that allowed people to effectively work in New York City and uh, live elsewhere. It's uh, You mentioned earlier the uh, tax codes as being an integral part of the existence of the suburb, and particularly the 1980 tax code, which uh, created the mortgage interest deduction, which actually made it more lucrative to be a homeowner than to than be a renter. And the various levels of federal government and uh, municipal government interactions in the 70s and 80s that led to cities being drained of funding. And particularly, I think one that is the most well-known is this concept of redlining, which was created under the FHA under President Johnson. And the idea was that uh, high minority areas would not be able to be uh, subject to or be allowed to get uh, bank financing that is backed by uh, federally backed uh, mortgage insurance, uh, which made it uh, very difficult for people that were in certain areas to get the full value of their homes and for those people to move to other areas as well. Um, So a lot of these social, cultural, political um, issues come together in this amazingly toxic soup uh, that created the American suburb that we have today. So I'm really curious about what your thoughts are going forward on a few issues. So one in particular. So with COVID, New York City lost an estimated 5% of its population, which is about 440,000 people. So other dense urban areas have experienced the same thing. And by scrolling through Instagram, it seems that everyone moved to Miami for a hot minute. (laughs) New York Times in particular looked at municipal data around car registration and found that most people actually moved just a few hours from their home city. So how do you think places like Montclair, New Jersey, Huntington, New York, Greenwich, Connecticut, are going to benefit from COVID in the long term in the context of the suburban typology? Well, it's actually sort of interesting. The one thing that I think that happened during the pandemic was that, you know, people learned that um, they could work from home and be, be much more productive. So two things. Number one, yes, the city lost a lot of people. But number one, many of the people are coming back. Mm-hmm. That's the first thing. But I think people are coming back into this with sort of um, an understanding of that, that they can live and work from almost anywhere now. So I do think that this ability for people to, you know, even if they're nominally based in a place like New York, but are living in the suburbs, you know, like you said, Montclair, Huntington, I think that effectively, you know, people will, a lot of people will be maybe st- spending more time, you know, in their hometowns or in their in their suburban locations. And effectively what that does is that I think it takes a lot of the urban activity of New York, it takes the population, and I think it spreads that out to these different towns. So I think that this potentially could be very good for um, a lot of the t- uh, cities and a lot of the neighborhoods just outside uh, New York City. I have a colleague at a company called Daybase, actually, which um, it, it's, a, it's a co-working space that... Mm-hmm. Cater specifically to that. So the idea is to create sort of a second space or third space, actually, where you know it's a co-working space that's effectively uh, designed for small, smaller cities, smaller towns. You know, mm-hmm. a little bit more of a suburban occupation. So I think potentially this could, you know, what's coming out of COVID is that this new redis- redistribution of of our work activities could actually become a tool for for revitalizing or bringing more energy to towns outside New York City. It's not. The new calculus is that it's not just New York or nowhere, Mm -hmm. but it's New York and all of these other places. 
which I think is uh, quite fascinating. I agree. And I think as leasing and sales for Class A office in urban core areas continue to be challenged, it's the suburban office that is doing quite well right now, both on the leasing and the sales perspective. I think it's this notion of what you described as the third or fourth space is particularly interesting to office uh, tenants right now. Uh, And I think a couple of the things that listeners might look forward to or keep their eyes open for is I believe that these smaller cities are going to benefit exceedingly from relatively well-heeled New Yorkers now moving their tax domicile to their cities. So that I think is going to be allowing for a greater flow of funding to smaller cities. And you're probably going to see demand-driven improvements in terms of retail. So if someone's expecting all the retail that they saw in uh, Hoboken to be in these cities an hour away, that I think over time, locations like the ones in Western New Jersey will start uh, being able to rise up and, uh, and address some of those demands. I think you're going to probably see changes in housing stocks. So namely to include, um, for example, like you talked about office spaces within the home. So totally cool to wear sweatpants there. Maybe not in the day base. Maybe you have to elevate a little bit from the sweatpants there. But uh, I think also if you think about the movie Minari, the sort of uncomfortable uh, place that the grandmother had in that home, there wasn't really a place for her there. Uh, And I think that as the population of the United States uh, looks a little bit more like me and you, uh, that there are going to be alternate visions of what a suburban home actually looks like in terms of the consideration of multiple generations living under the same roof. Thanks for joining me today on American Building. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, subscribe on your favorite listening app and don't forget to rate and review. And friends, I've teamed up with writers for the New York Times and Dwell Magazine to launch a digital media platform to tell the fascinating stories of the impact developers and capital providers I work with at Commonplace. Check it out at commonplace.us.